This is Jim Easter. You are listening to Talk Louisiana on WRKF, and your number is 877-217-5757. Emails go to talk at talklouisiana.org. We begin with Stephanie Regal reporting for The Advocate and The Picayune. She, of course, has been a ubiquitous presence as a journalist, television, newspaper, radio. She's a three-way threat, and we're glad she also does Out to Lunch on our station. So at the moment, she is on the forefront of a major story, one that's been in the works for well over a year. And this week, as Stephanie reported, State lawmakers grilled officials with Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Louisiana for nearly eight hours over the proposed $2.5 billion sale of the local nonprofit. Before we get there, this program is originating from the Investar Bank Tower in Baton Rouge, and signature support is from East Baton Rouge Parish, Mayor Sharon Weston Broom. Stephanie Regal, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing well. Very nice introduction. Well, you're you're maybe a person who has not rested on your laurels. Uh, we've both been no. doing this for some time. Me, right. me, me a little longer, but not that much longer. You you've been not much. <laughs> I remember as we reflect just a bit. 1987 Monteleone Hotel. Edwin Edwards throws in the towel in the middle of the night, ah. does, and I was standing, I think, next to Stephanie Regal when he did it. It was amazing. It really was. And yes, I think that was that was true. But I was in college then covering it for the Reveille, so yes. just so. <laughs> <laughs> but you were covering it, and it was a historic yeah. night. And the next day, by the way, the Saints lost to the 49ers, and that was when Jim Morris said, woulda, coulda, shoulda. And that was his most famous uh, outburst. Uh, he was a quipster, and uh, it was quite a weekend in the great city of New Orleans. <laughs> Where you are uh, now situated, uh, Stephanie is a New Orleanian, true and true, through and through, but uh, you uh, spent a lot of time in Baton Rouge, but now most of the time is in the crown jewel of Louisiana, is it not? Indeed, and and there's lots to write about there, and uh, always interesting, never a dull moment. Well, this Blue Cross Elevant story, it is something that affects the whole state of Louisiana. Uh, there are, what, about 2 million, almost 2 million policyholders for state uh, for, uh, like Blue that, Cross? right. And so, you know, 1.9 or so, like, covered lives, that includes people's kids, right? I mean, that's people that are covered by Blue Cross insurance. Um, terms like policyholders and members get a little bit confusing, at least for the, for the general public, Um Blue Cross is a nonprofit mutual insurance company. That means it's owned by its members. And so, as you mentioned, a little over a year ago, and I think the deal was in the works more than that, the board of Blue Cross, which is based in Baton Rouge, more than 2,000 employees here, long company with a, a good, strong track record as a blue of, of insuring most of the people in this state, and with a lion's share of the market, by the way, they've kept a lot of formidable competitors out, but they announced a plan, um, I don't want to say hatched because that sounds like a pejorative, but they, that, that was decided upon by their board of directors to sell company to Elevance Health, which previously did business under the name of Anthem and still does in some programs in some states use the Anthem brand name, but um Elements is a major national insurer. 
it, it really ensures more people around the country than anybody but United Healthcare, which is the largest commercial for-profit publicly traded insurer in the nation. Um, Elements isn't as big a company as Aetna and Cigna and Humana because it, it, its other product and service lines aren't as big. But in terms of insurance, it is as big. And the Blue Cross board decided to sell the company because the case they've made is that even though they're large, still financially viable, strong, healthy, they see down the road that it's going to be increasingly difficult to compete over the long term. Their most profitable lines of business, which is like the commercially insured business, is shrinking as larger companies like United become more aggressive in the market and are able to provide these kind of plans less expensively. And as more companies, and of course, employers are, are the big backbone of healthcare and, and provide subsidized coverage for anybody with a job, by and large, those kind of companies, Turner Industries and Baton Rouge, they're increasingly going to self-funded plans. And for Blue Cross, uh, you know, which has a lot of different types of plans, but they see the writing on the wall. And so their argument has been, it makes sense to sell now while we're strong to a for-profit company. That means we have to reorganize ourselves from a nonprofit to a for-profit, and then we can sell. And, and sort of the, the carrot with this deal and, and why they have argued that it will be so good is because they will take the proceeds of the sale and combine it with their existing surpluses, which are a very healthy billion dollars plus, and create a large uh, nonprofit foundation that would be called Accelerate Louisiana, and use that to help improve the, the health and lives of the people of Louisiana and get them off of poverty and improve their health outcomes, which you know well are the worst in the nation. So that's the big picture of what's going on. Well, as you reported, uh, Elevance has racked up over $26 million in regulatory fines for violations, including denying coverage of needed medical care, failing to cover preventive service like immunizations and breast cancer screening, and failing to pay screens or pay claims in a a timely manner. And Jay Luno, the senator from Alexandria, in your story, quoted as saying, this is alarming. I have real concerns about what is going to happen if this deal goes through. Does he uh, speak for a majority of the legislature, or is uh, Jay Luno speaking largely for himself? Well, Jay Luno is a Democrat, so he's in the minority in the legislature. What was interesting about the hearing where that data came out on Monday was that it was Republican legislators. Patrick McMath, the chairman of the Senate Health and Welfare Committee from the North Shore, and Kirk Talbot, the chairman of the Senate Insurance Committee from Metairie, who called the joint hearing. And I've never seen a legislative hearing like that in my life. And admittedly, I'm not the Capitol Bureau reporter, but I've been around a long time. And these guys and and gals were locked and loaded and prepared and really had a lot of detailed information that they clearly wanted to elicit. They knew the answer to already, and they wanted to see what officials had to say about it. About that report, Jim, and, and that's all been widely you know, reported in the trade pubs, and, and that information came from the executive counsel to the Department of Insurance, which will ultimately be the body that weighs in on that. Dave Caldwell, he, um, he had put the spreadsheet together and, and 
under questioning, you know, presented that data to the committee and the people in the audience. You know, Elements is not alone in racking up big fines from regulators in other states. This is the deal with for-profit insurance companies. They are guided by one North Star and one North Star alone. They make money for their shareholders. That's what public companies do. You know, I mean, that's just the, the way it goes. And so there's nothing wrong with that. That's just they have to make money. And the way you make money in a world where healthcare costs continue to go up and up and up is to really hold the line on utilization. And they talk about this very openly in their earnings calls. I mean, they use sort of industry terms, but if you know anything about what they're saying, they're saying we, we manage our utilization and, and, we, and we increase premiums. And sometimes regulators think that goes too far. And so in those cases, in other states, they've, you know, they've dinged elements for being too hard on prior authorizations, particularly with Medicaid programs. Um, but elements is not alone in that. United has also racked up big fines in Aetna and Cigna and everybody else. What's different, and this is kind of, you know, just because everybody does it, you know, the whataboutism argument, the flip side to that is that Blue Cross has not been dinged like that. You know, they have not been cited by regulators. They have not been sued by the Department of Justice. You could say maybe that's because we don't have a really tough insurance commission, but that's a whole separate issue. And so I think that's what concerns legislators and critics of this deal. They say, you know, Elements' argument is that, hey, we are a publicly traded company. We want to be competitive. We don't want to provide substandard or rotten care for the people of Louisiana. We don't want to screw this up. We want to do a good job, and we can because we're big. We have the tools and the technology. So well, um, next, it, it, ne- was, it was a fascinating hearing. Yeah, and next week, as in Ash Wednesday, day after Mardi Gras, the Department of Insurance will convene for a two-day hearing. This should be interesting, to say the least. It will be very interesting, and I think a lot of what we saw at this legislative hearing on Monday will be brought up again. Um, you know, the, the purpose of the hearing is for Blue Cross to make a case to regulators that they should be reorganized so that they could sell because this will be in the best interest of their policyholders and the people of Louisiana. And Dave Caldwell, the Department of Insurance attorney, you know, kept telling the legislators, we're not just going to rubber stamp this. We're not going to go along and just, you know, say, trust us and we will. We're gonna- okay, we're going to have to pause, but we'll be back in 89.3 seconds with Stephanie Regal on Talk Louisiana. This is Jim Inkster. You are listening to Talk Louisiana. A few more minutes with Stephanie Regal, and we'll seg to Mark Ballard in the Beltway. And Stephanie is reporting for The Advocate and The Picayune as a staff writer of note with a few decades of experience covering Louisiana life and politics. And insurance is something that is extremely precious to us because in this world we're in a lot of hurt if we don't have it. And about half the people in the state get their insurance from Blue Cross, and the company has argued that selling to Elevance would offer improved services. Now, uh, some people are not buying this, and it ultimately will come down to what uh, the people in power think. And Governor Landry at first was against it and now appears to be leaning in another direction, although I don't know that he has made up his mind. 
he probably will have a lot to say whether or not this goes through, Stephanie. Yeah, you know, it's really been very curious. And when this was all coming to a, I don't want to say a head, but, you know, this deal was originally proposed last January 2023, uh, mid-summer, people that were paying attention. And a lot of that came from the broker community because Blue Cross has been really good to those guys and gals who basically broker insurance deals for small and, and primarily small and medium-sized companies. They got really concerned, started looking into this, and the more people, the more scrutiny it came under, along the way it got the attention of then Attorney General Jeff Landry, who also was the front runner in the governor's race at the time. And, and between providers, doctors and hospitals, who were obviously concerned about the impact this will have on their reimbursement rates, broker community concerned about what it'll mean to their business and, and premiums for people. Uh, some policyholders who didn't like the way the proceeds of the deal are going to be split between this foundation, Accelerate Louisiana, and then all this. And then lawmakers made a big deal of it. They had a, a, another hearing back last summer. Um, Jeff Landry weighed in and said, as attorney general, he had real issues about um, and concerns about whether this would be a, an anti-trade and consumer protection problem. And so he was going to look into it. And he also questions this foundation and this big pot of money that was going to be controlled by a small group of people. And under, I think, all those pressure points, the companies decided to table the deal for a few months until after the election. Um, during that time, Landry did meet with them. And after he became governor in early December, the company refiled the plans and said they were going to move forward as before. The terms of the sale were unchanged, but they had made some changes to the plans for the foundation. And they had more carefully spelled out how they intend to use the money in the foundation not just to improve the health, health and, and, and lives of the people of Louisiana, which is what its original mission was, but to specifically focus on improving health outcomes in Louisiana, on moving people from dependence on public assistance to independence. And, you know, that's been a big priority of our very Republican Governor Landry. Also, the foundation is going to look at, at, at improving or growing the healthcare workforce because there's a shortage of nurses and med techs and people like that. And then this sort of vaguely worded um, fourth priority that has to do with better aligning uh, government service areas. Another significant change to the Accelerate Louisiana rules um, is that this small board that's going to control the money and eventually will, will grow out also includes now a seat that the governor can appoint someone to. And, and so there were some concerns that have been raised by people like, well, that looks like a political quid pro quo. Um, whatever these changes were, it was enough to get the governor to no longer oppose the deal. He has, he has said publicly that he is not going to take a position yet. And he doesn't really have any regulatory authority over it anyway, but he did deliver a speech last week to the very powerful Louisiana Hospital Association in Baton Rouge. And while he told them he wasn't taking a position, he... All right. Did we lose Stephanie? ...of the there deal. I'm serious. I'm sorry. Okay, he fine. did lay out the advantages of, of 
of the foundation and all the good things he said it would do. All right. Well, so, at, you know, that was very interesting. At the conclusion of this almost eight hour hearing, uh, Chair McMath said uh, the cake clearly is not baked. He's uh, quoting Jimmy Webb, Webb and MacArthur Park. <laughs> I, I left the cake out in the rain. After seven and a half hours, as Stephanie reports, uh, McMath said, we find it difficult to come up with any real substantive advantages to selling our nonprofit blue to a for-profit company. In this pot of money that you referenced, $3.1 billion dollars, one of the major players, and Howlin Monroe notes this, is Tim Barfield, who's a, a fine gentleman. In fact, he started his career at Tiger Rag. But he also, as Hal notes, is a jindalite. And uh, if there's one thing that's clear, Jeff Landry does not like jindalites. So I would suspect Barfield uh, is uh, not exactly embraced by the administration. And uh, I don't know if you want to go there, but he is right in the middle of this, isn't he? Well, he is right in the middle of this, and I think he and Jeff Landry have had many uh, had conversations about this foundation and the and what the governor really would like to see this huge pot of money um, focused on. And I think they're in alignment on that. Tim told me that in a telephone interview day before yesterday. He said, "You know, I really um, he wants to do what's best for the people of Louisiana, and um, I, you know, I agree with a lot of that." and so I think I can't speak to, to where they were in the past, um, and I don't know personally what they think of each other, but I think they're working together and are aligned on, on, on where Accelerate Louisiana will go. I mean, the interesting thing is, as, as the foundation was initially proposed, you know, it was going to work to try to get people healthier and, and, and improve the lives of the state. With this new language, um, you know, Jeff Landry has has made it clear that he and, and with his comments to the LHA, which are worth you know watching, if you can. It was on a, a link in our story last week, but um, he definitely wants to focus heavily on moving people off of public assistance, and specifically, he said to the LHA, Medicaid. Um, you know, I don't know how getting people off of Medicaid makes them healthier, and Medicaid is mostly largely paid for by the federal government. It's health insurance for poor people. Um, but that's going to be a priority area of this nonprofit foundation. So, it, you know, it's really interesting to see how this is going to all play out. And, and those are issues that have sort of um, given pause or maybe additional fodder to some of the people who have been critical of this deal. Stephanie Regal, we hope to have uh, an encore performance from you sometime soon. This is a story that has a lot of moving parts, and we're glad you're on the beat. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good to talk with you, Stephanie. And as we move to Mark Ballard in the Beltway, uh, much is happening there regarding the border, which could be one of the top two or three issues in the 2024 presidential election. And by the way, on the fifth day of this month, we were nine months away from the election, so now we're inside nine months to November 5th. But Governor Landry, before we go to the national aspect of this, wants to send Louisiana National Guard troops in the, to the U.S.-Mexico border to aid Texas in a standoff with President Biden over immigration policy, a mission that could cost taxpayers in our state $3 million or more. And speaking from the border city of Eagle Pass on Sunday, Landry and 13 other governors uh, traveled there. 
He said, uh, when, in, when in trouble, our neighbors in Texas have always opened their arms to us. Now it's time we return the favor. Mark Ballard, you've covered Louisiana politics for a generation or so. Uh, Jeff Landry uh, says the, the guys in the Lone Star State need our help. What do you make of this? <laughs> I, I think it's a, a political issue and that the, uh, the conservative Republican governors from around the uh, country are kind of rallying to this idea that uh, uh, Greg Abbott has proposed that because the president hasn't done what he thinks should have been done at the border, that they are in a crisis and that that gives him a constitutional right to uh, defend the state. And, uh, and they're coming in to help with that. But there, there is a constitutional crisis and it's a uh, over you know, who's going to prevail on this, and that is the, the federal government or the state. 877-217-5757. As always, your Louisiana Talk Louisiana number back after this. This is Jim Inkster. You are listening to Talk Louisiana. Mark Ballard of The Advocate is with us, as he is on most Thursdays. And much is happening in an election year, and the Senate GOP blocked a bipartisan border deal and a foreign aid package in a key vote this week. And it only got 49 votes and needed 60 to even be voted upon officially. And Louisiana senators, both Cassidy and Kennedy, have made a lot of uh, statements, gotten much mileage out of attacking Joe Biden on the border. And President Biden accepted the will of the Republican majority in the U.S. House and was working with the Senate, and he had the support at first, of Mitch McConnell, but ultimately McConnell said they didn't have the votes to get it through, and McConnell voted no, as did Cassidy and Kennedy, for a border bill that would have tightened the borders. What is going on, Mark Ballard? <laughs> this is all presidential politics. I believe that uh, that uh, Senator Langford, who who was uh, the chief Republican, a very conservative Republican from Oklahoma, uh, pointed out on the floor yesterday that this is all presidential politics. Basically, the Republicans demanded a border security bill, and uh, they got pretty much everything that they asked for in that border security bill. Uh, but uh, but uh, President Trump, uh, former President Trump, said that he did not want that. He it's a core issue for him in his reelection campaign, and he said that uh, he didn't want any Republican support for uh, uh, for what he called Joe Biden's uh, border security bill. And so that kind of he kind of lost it at that point. Uh, the the Republicans uh, or, or many of them decided not to support the bill for various reasons, uh, but uh, basically they they pulled back on it. So today they're going to be looking at going uh, passing out the original funding for Israel, the Ukraine, and Taiwan without border security on it and they got 58 votes yesterday on on a procedure for that so they need 60 to have it passed today if if they go out and that's kind of what it is at the same time over in the uh in the house the uh the house republicans were unable to impeach uh mayorkas who they seem to be blaming for all of the uh the the border crisis 877-217-5757 is your number. Mark Mallard, as always, uh, at the ready. And 
he is following what's going on in Washington and on Capitol Hill. It's been a busy week. There was also a vote, a listener notes, uh, Tracy at the Capitol regarding an impeachment attempt against one of uh, President Biden's appointees, Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas. He uh, survived this impeachment effort. Uh, The vote was a 215-215 tie. It stunned uh, the House floor into a standstill, and some of these House members are not happy at all, which, of course, could mean Mike Johnson is in a world of hurt because he is the leader Representative Steve Womack of Arkansas, who's a conservative, says Republicans need to whip votes better and not not get into a, a situation as they did in which they basically uh, they talk the talk, but then they don't walk the walk. So uh, Mark Ballard, I think every member of the Republican delegation in Louisiana, although I think Scalise did miss the vote because of his illness, uh, every member of our delegation voted uh, to impeach this man. And I'm not sure exactly why, but once again, this uh, smacks of election year politics. Uh, yeah, every Republican member. Uh, yes, voted other than Troy Carter. Man, other, Troy Carter, uh, our only Democrat, voted uh, against impeaching, uh, and they and 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 Steve Scalise was unable to vote because he was not in Washington. Um, so yeah, this is uh, what the argument was: is that, uh, and it was persuasive for three. Uh, there were three uh, Republicans, and the fourth Republican who changed his vote did so at the last minute so that they could bring it up again, so that the Republicans could bring it up again once Scalise returns, uh, and 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 the mathematics change. Uh, so that that's kind of where it stands right now. But as you mentioned, that there's a a whole lot of uh, uh, grumbling and grousing that's going on among the House Republicans uh, saying, you know, that Johnson is showing his lack of uh, experience in this, uh, in that he allowed the vote to go through, even though he knew at the time that he didn't have the votes. But Johnson says, well, I did know. And and this is like right out of the movies and everything. Al Green, uh, who's a representative from Houston, uh, was uh, had surgery uh, yesterday or day before yeah, the day before the uh, the vote and was not expected to show up and then you know a surprise you know at the last minute he comes in you know no shoes in a robe uh, in a wheelchair and casts the vote which uh, uh, Mike Johnson said uh, threw off his math and that was what led to the uh, to the lo- to the loss however a number of the House Republicans said no he should have he should have had this in hand before they even called for the vote. What is saving Mr. Johnson, however, is that uh, a lot of the uh, the same grousing Republicans are also saying, "Well, I we don't know who else could handle this," you know. <laughs> so, so that may be what's going to save him is the fact that they can't they don't have a, a viable candidate to replace him with. Well, a few days ago, uh, Stephanie Grace, uh, your editorial director, wrote a nice editorial about how Garrett Graves could challenge Clay Higgins. And, of course, he could. Graves can run in any district he wants to, as can any member of the delegation or any citizen of Louisiana. You don't have to live in your congressional district like you presumably have to live in your legislative district, although, as we know, that's not often, not always the case either. But 
when it, when it comes down to key votes, there isn't a whole lot to choose between Garrett Graves and Clay Higgins. Now, the style points are much different, Mark, but when it comes to voting, those two people vote remarkably similarly. Well, they are. Both of them are conservative. And I mean, I think it's a mistake that we often make about Mr. Graves and, uh, well, and Senator Cassidy, for that matter, is uh, their willingness to work across the aisle has been interpreted by many of the base uh, that uh, that they're somehow rhinos. And, and I, that's not the case. They're both very conservative and uh, and cast very conservative votes, uh, even though they are willing to work across the aisle on certain things. I mean, one thing to, to note on this is uh, that uh, Clay Higgins does not have a whole lot of money in his war chest. Uh, they, the reports uh, were were uh, uh, needed to come in last week, and it shows that the Clay Higgins has two hundred twenty one thousand dollars, and Graves has almost four million dollars in his war chest. So if he so were to, to make just, us that, yeah. Would you worry? <laughs> yeah, if he were, and, to, and Julia <laughs> Letlow has well over a million in her war chest <clears throat> for the campaign. But Graves Make has... Make that what you will. I just pass that along. $4 million for Garrett Graves. That's that's a great nugget. What? Talk about being 3. all dressed... 3. 3.8. 3.8. Okay, let's not get carried away. Yeah. But talk about being all dressed up and no place to go. <laughs> he doesn't really have a district that's good for him right now, but uh, if, 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 if uh, well, good advertising would uh, do it, uh, he, he could be potentially a player in in several districts, including Letlow or Higgins or the new district. Uh, there's a 54% African-American majority in the new district, if it stands, which uh, presumably would make Cleo Fields the favorite, and I think it would. But Graves, that's the 6th district now. He could uh, just stay where he is and attempt to hold the 6th district, Mark. Well, I'm not good-looking enough to be a political uh, advisor on these things, but uh, <laughs> What it seems is that if you look at uh, the overlap of, of people who voted for Graves in the 6th District, then a lot of those voters are now in Julia Letlow's district, you know, up to, you know, the uh, in and around LSU. Uh, now, Clay Higgins has a good number of those uh, voters, you know, that had voted for uh, uh, Garrett Graves, but most of them, I think, uh, uh, would be in Julia Letlow's district new district if all of this is upheld by the courts i can't imagine garrett graves getting a whole lot of contributions from national republicans to unseat julia letlow that does them absolutely no good at all but i could see him getting a lot of uh, contributions to unseat uh, clay higgins because uh, a lot of national republicans don't view him as being ready for prime time but in Acadiana, uh, Higgins is wildly popular, and he's one of their own, and he's uh, that's easier said than done. I don't know that it would be easy to move him out of the way, Mark. I don't think so either. I mean, it would be difficult. However, there's a historical uh, precedent in that uh, Jeff Landry, who was the congressman of the 3rd District uh, that was redrafted, uh, was uh, moved out of the way by Charles Costani who was, uh, uh, again, conservative, but also willing to work across the aisle. So Right, but he was from Lafayette, and, uh, and, and Garrett Graves is, is, is not a Cajun. He's not, right. <laughs> <laughs> Although he does share with Bustani, 
You know, Neither Louis, is Clay Higgins, by the way. At one time, we had three Arab Americans representing us in Congress at the, I think the same time. We had Bustani, Graves, and Ralph Abraham at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And, and they are all, uh, their, their ancestors hail from that part of the world. And that is, uh, Louisiana gets a lot of criticism for being prejudiced, but uh, we have shown a propensity. We're the only state, I believe, Mark, to have elected a Vietnamese, Vietnamese American to Congress. And Joe, yeah, Gow- I don't know the, the uh, yeah, I don't know the history of that, but I, uh, but yeah, we were. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's going to be interesting, and uh, the, the, there's not you know the uh, November election is getting closer and closer. It's inside nine months, so let's see if uh, the courts can resolve this. But Garrett Graves, of course, would like to just p- hit the pause button, have the districts go as they have been, and then uh, regroup uh, in re-election and run against Bill Cassidy in 2026. And we'll see what happens, but we'll spend another quarter hour with the remarkable Mark Ballard, who covers politics near and far, and uh, Mike Johnson. It continues to get lots of ink but will the ink be enough to keep him in power as we move toward November 5th, 2024? We'll talk about it with Mark and much more when we return for the last quarter hour on Talk Louisiana. This is Jim Inkster. Thank you for joining us for Talk Louisiana. Mark Ballard is at the ready, as always, talking Louisiana and national politics. He is perched in the Beltway, and much is happening regarding our delegation, and we have... The Speaker of the House as the leader of the delegation and Mike Johnson and the New York Times and other national publications are fascinated with Congressman Johnson, the pride of Benton, Louisiana. The Times actually did a front page story last week on Saturday saying that uh, Johnson walks through the Capitol uh, with his uh, phone to his head Uh as though he's carrying on a conversation and they're questioning whether he really is talking with anybody. It's just a way to, uh, as they say, it is a ploy that Mr. Johnson uses to dodge questions. <laughs> and uh, Mark, is he accessible to you? And what do you make of this uh, phone holding of Congressman Johnson? No, he does. That. He's not the only uh, Congressman that does that. And he's accessible only when he wants to be, uh, uh, and I got he's mostly accessible to the uh, to Fox News and the far right uh, news channels like Newsmax and 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 well, there's another one, too. But it, but he talks to them mostly and uh, they he does not talk to regular. Uh, and that's a, it is a conversation amongst the uh, the mainstream media. He does not talk to the New York Times or the Washington Post. And he rarely talks to us. That's a shame. A, a lot, a lot rare, a lot more rarely than he did prior to becoming speaker. So. Oh yeah, and and the 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 Times story notes that the much maligned Kevin McCarthy was highly accessible. That uh, he he didn't dodge questions, and that may have been his undoing. Well, yeah, Kevin McCarthy was. I, I think I've uh, interviewed Kevin McCarthy about five times more than I've uh, interviewed uh, uh, Mike Johnson since he's become speaker. And of course, Kevin McCarthy had no clue who I was, and uh, or you know, and probably needed a map to find where uh, Louisiana was located. <laughs> so, but uh, the aforementioned Garrett Graves, he made a political miscalculation by latching on to McCarthy, 
And I can see how those two would like each other. That they actually remind me of each other. They're both, uh, you know, they look the part and uh, they um, speak well, but they didn't speak the kind of talk that uh, the hard right wanted, at least not enough of it. And as a result, uh, McCarthy lost his gig and, and Garrett Graves uh, got punished for being connected to him. Well, yeah, I know that he punished as much as, uh, you know, just sort of kind of pushed aside because he wasn't part of the, uh, the, the in crowd. And, and wh- what McCarthy lost his gig with basically was that when he couldn't get the far right to go along with him and provide the votes that was necessary to get things passed, then he would use this uh, mechanism, which, uh, uh, which is uh, basically required two thirds votes, which meant that the Democrats would come in and help out. And uh, and Mike Johnson has done that several times without uh, I mean, McCarthy did it once and was kicked out. And uh, Mike Johnson has done it several times to get around the uh, the far right wing. Well, yesterday on this show, we had uh, Mary Landrew, the former U.S. senator from Louisiana, and she was criticizing President Biden for uh, making this decision to thwart the uh, expansion of LNG facilities and Louisiana of course has a number of them and Landry is a high paid lobbyist but some listeners were shocked shocked Mark to hear that uh, a Democrat had gone to the other side and was making a making I, I would say a compelling case for industry what's going on here Mark yeah uh, well first off she is a lobbyist uh, and represents uh, those interests but Secondly, she's been arguing, and and I mean from the very morning that uh, that uh, the president made that decision, that has been arguing that it's uh, uh, bad for for exports. Uh, it basically, she argues that basically we gather, we as Americans in, in Louisiana, gathers at a much less cost to the environment, uh, the natural gas that uh, Russia had and provides it to Europe that Russia had uh, provided to Europe prior to the Ukrainian war. And uh, so we, that we should be benefiting from this, you know, and that it would be lesser impact on the uh, environment. So uh, what he was doing is uh, uh, what he, the president was doing was basically kind of talking to his uh, green wing, if you will, and saying, look, see, we're doing this about it, but he's also been trying to balance that with uh balance the green wing with the fact that we need to have more uh, fossil fuel productions. And she's pushing, she's pushing on that. Right. Now, Mary, and I, is not the only Democrat pushing on that, by the way. So, mm, okay. No, uh, but, but she won three terms in the U S Senate and fought mightily to keep her seat, but only got 44% against Bill Cassidy, who ran on a one issue campaign that Mary Landrieu had voted more than 90% of the time with President Obama. Now, uh, Cassidy, a lot of these things he did in the past, uh, I think they're going to come back to bite him in a couple of years when people talk about him. But uh, the closed primary doesn't seem to be a very good prescription for victory for him, Mark. Well, yeah, and he certainly continues to argue that uh, we don't need a closed primary because it costs so much money. Um, and uh, he said that he said that to us uh, uh i guess tuesday you know i mean it's been he's he's still continuing on that but it is it is true that uh if you have a closed primary where in which mostly elderly far 
right conservative voters participate, then that's not really good for uh, for Bill Cassidy. And I believe we talked about this last week, and it has propelled another inquiry from a, from a listener about whether Cassidy will, quote, suck it up and endorse Donald Trump. I suspect he will. <laughs> well, I've asked him repeatedly to the point that he's starting, you know, to... Uh, answer kind of harshly and his answer is i will vote for the republican candidate well i would say and, that's and tantamount that's to of, an endorsement well I, well I, we, we know well, that, if we, that candidate is donald trump are you going to vote for him despite the fact of your, your previous vote and he says i'm going to vote for the republican candidate well and, you know, and again it doesn't you know <laughs> There it is. If it's Paul Pot, he's going to vote for the Republican candidate. <laughs> well, when I look, I'm pulling it up right now. I want to get the current information from Real Clear Politics, which, of course, uh, follows the the odds on uh, presidential election uh, possibilities as we're inside nine months. And uh, according to Real Clear Politics, the odds of Donald Trump receiving the Republican nomination and being the Republican candidate and getting the vote of Bill Cassidy, those odds, Mark, are 87.2%. <laughs> so I would think Bill Cassidy uh, will suddenly become Donald Trump's new best friend. I, I think that they're understating it. I mean, I, I think he's all but assured to be. Well, of course, I don't know. As soon as I say that, then something will happen. But, I mean, right now, I think he's all but assured to be the Republican presidential candidate. And in the six so-called battleground states, uh, in Georgia, Trump's ahead 49-42. In Wisconsin, he's ahead 47-46. In Arizona, he's ahead 47-43. In Nevada, 49-42. In Michigan, 47-42. And in Pennsylvania, it's a tie between him and Biden at 45. Those numbers right now aren't particularly good for Joseph Robinette no. Biden Jr. Right now, yes. Right they now. Are. But, it, yeah, I think that, you know, that uh, that Biden's team has recognized that. In fact, earlier this week in Greenbrier, Virginia, they held a retreat in which they basically said, you know, y'all stop worrying about this because, uh, you know, they the economy is getting better, and if they're going to do a better job of promoting that, uh, the disarray in the Republican Party, uh, you know, in Congress is uh, is going to uh, benefit them. Though, you know, generally presidents get blamed for everything, and the uh, what the the Biden campaign needs to do is to point out what he has done and what he can't do. Well, what do you make of the Super Bowl? <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, I, my uh, my understanding is that uh, under Tay-Tay Gate, that uh, that basically the uh, Chiefs have already won it, so that uh, Taylor Swift can uh, do a, a, a endorsement of Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. But San Francisco is a two and a half point favorite, uh, even though most of the attention is on the Chiefs, who've won a couple of Super Bowls of recent vintage and. Uh, have, uh, well, I, I I love Patrick Mahomes. I, he's he's, he's a, special. A superstar. He, he may he may be uh, on TV too much selling stuff, but but he's a great uh, he's a great quarterback. On the other hand, I like the fact that the uh, what was it the quarterback from uh, whose name I I can't even call for San Francisco was Brock like Purdy. a seventh round draft choice. Yeah. Uh, draft he's choice. a rags to riches story. 
and something I like that. <laughs> something uh, something you you won't read anywhere other than in Tiger Rag, but uh, it is a story, and I, I don't know. People have become so sensitive about even touching the issue of race that uh, they won't do it. But Christian McCaffrey of the 49ers led the NFL in rushing, and Mark, do you know he's the first white man to lead the NFL in rushing in 61 years. The last time it was Jim Taylor of the Green Bay Packers, pride of LSU in the year of 1962 when you and I were toddlers. That was a long time ago. That, that was a long time ago. And didn't Jim Taylor actually live in, uh, in Baton Rouge until his death? Lived in Walden. Yep, he sure did. And a great man. Loved him dearly. And uh, he was but a competitor I, like uh, nobody else. I, and I didn't know. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I didn't know. <laughs> nobody wants to talk about that, but there it is. Mark Ballard, thank you. We'll talk next week. Always a pleasure. Signature support is from East Baton Rouge Parish.